You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 137. So this is a, what they call an exile psalm. This is a psalm that takes us right back into the history of the Babylonian exile. So we are going back to the time of the uh, Babylonian exile. Do you remember the nation, the empire of Babylon, took Israel into captivity, raised Jerusalem to the ground, and undoubtedly, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern warfare, usually when something like that happened, uh, a lot of atrocities would happen. It was obviously very common to kill children. The idea is, um, why I'm going into this, it'll come up in this psalm, uh, why I'm going into this is that they didn't want to be the new takeover empire, didn't want a, like a Conan the Barbarian situation. If you don't know that reference, the empire took over killed this person's father and the son was watching and then he grew up to become a great warrior to seek vengeance. And the actual reason why it was quite common to get rid of the younger population and the female population on a takeover was so that you didn't end up with anyone seeking vengeance against the new empire. You sort of started fresh, that was the idea in ancient warfare and it was just a brutal, brutal time when these things happened and the Jewish people were on the receiving end of it at this time. Now I always like to think Just imagine for a moment, if you can play a thought uh, experiment, being one of the Jewish people at this time and having these invading Babylonians come take your city, do those atrocities in front of you and then put shackles on you and start marching you out of your home back to a foreign land where you don't know where you're going. If you just could sort of imagine the emotions and what those people would be feeling at that time, we really don't have any point, I don't know, any point of comparison except for just reading history and certain events in modern history that are parallel to that. That's the only thing we can do, but it must have been quite a serious thing. I just can't really imagine it, but we're going to get a little insight into some of that through this psalmist today. This is also an imprecatory psalm. That means it's a psalm that is just raw in its language and its emotion in it. It is a psalm that is crying out for justice in this world. And quite often these psalms shock us, particularly with our Western sensitivities to these sorts of things. But that's the whole point of them in one sense. They are supposed to shock us. And I'll explain that as we go through more. So let's read verses 1 to 3. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So we get a picture here of the Jewish people in captivity now in Babylon. The picture is of captives sitting by uh, the bank of the river, probably the great Euphrates River that was the source of everything in Babylon. They had a great canal system that came off. A lot of people speculate it was actually the Jewish people as slaves who built that canal system. And so they would picture them working slave labor by this river here for a moment, taking shade under one of the willow trees and sitting here and they remember Zion, their home, and they weep. That is the picture that we have here. They weep upon the remembrance of Zion. And Zion here is not just the the geographical location of the land of Israel. It's so much more than that that's being expressed here. It's the place of covenant. That's how we want to think of it. It's the place of promise. It's the land that God gave them to dwell, the land where they were supposed to fellowship with God, and it was the place where God would dwell among them too, his people. And in light of this, One of the reasons for the tears, this sort of poignant emotional aspect of it, is that they are weeping at their own failure. 
They're weeping that it was the nation's failure, the nation's sins that led them to this place where they are sitting in captivity in a strange land. They wept for the death of those who would have been brutally slaughtered in the destruction, in the takeover, all those women and children lost to war, the ruin of the temple, the ruin of Jerusalem, the city of the great king, as they called it, was now lying in ruins. All of these things are the background to this psalm where we see this group of uh, exiles now just weeping next to the rivers of Babylon. It says, Upon the willow trees in the midst of it we hung our hearts. Uh, There's lots of places. Babylon was actually, the idea is they had just loads of trees down the side of this river, willow trees. It says they hung their harps. Now this was probably a symbolic expression by the psalmist to express the fact that Remember, a lot of the Levites and the singers were taken captive at this time. We get a list of them elsewhere in the Bible. But the idea is that they hung their harps up. That's a, an act, a symbolic act to signify that they were just not singing right now. There was no song in this people. There was no praise in this people. The psalmist pictures them hanging up their harps. And then we get verse 3. So that's, the, that's where they are mentally the Jewish people at this time just a deep state of raw emotion grieving over their sin grieving over the tragedy grieving over the loss of their home how they've let the Lord down sins of the nation all these things are just welling up inside them and they're weeping and they're not they don't have the songs of Zion as they're called here in them and then we have verse 3 where the captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying sing us one of the songs of Zion Now, I see this as a mocking request that's going on here. This is a cruel exercise. This is guards using slave labor and using them for entertainment. Sing us one of the songs of of Zion. They're provoking them. I read one article on this by a a contemporary rabbi, a modern-day rabbi, and he relayed it with a contemporary story to give an idea of the feeling. He said, imagine you were a Jew in 1942. You'd just been taken over and captured by the SS, and you're being led in a procession along with uh, thousands of your other countrymen to a train that will take you to one of your death camps. And they would then be forced to sing the traditional feftist songs of the Jewish people, like Hava Nagila, or typical songs that are associated with joy, with weddings, and uh, events that the Jewish people would have loved and celebrated. And he's not making this up. This was actually stuff that did happen. I read read the accounts of it. It's quite tragic. They were, at gunpoint, being forced to sing the songs of celebration as they were marched to the trains that would take them to Auschwitz and the other death camps. And for me, that gives a quite a good parallel if you want to just put that back to Babylon, the sort of feeling and emotion that we have here going on in these people. The mocking and the torment only really emphasize the fact that, again, they were there because of their own sin. You see, the songs of Zion, this is referring to typically, a, a, most of the Psalms are actually referred to as the songs of Zion, but there's a few standout ones that we've already studied that focus on Zion, but typically they speak of the security of Zion, the safety of Zion, the blessing of Zion, and the, the ironic fact is now that Zion lays in ruins and the heathen are mocking God and they're mocking his people. The point is that the nation of Israel profaned God's name among the nations by worshipping false gods, by engaging in spiritual adultery, as it was called. And instead of fulfilling their purpose, which was to be a light to the nations, but now they sit here and they weep, and God's name is being profaned among the nations. Verse 4, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So the tormentors saying, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. And their answer is, how can we sing the songs of praise, the songs of Zion that Israel sang were not mere words. This is the point that's going on here. They were not simply a performance. They were not simply entertainment. They were born out of real relationship with God and acknowledgement of his truth and of his righteousness, of his commandments, of his law, which, again, emphasizing the fact that they were here because they had broken that. They are captive due to their own, sing, their own sins, and therefore they cannot sing the songs of Zion at this time. You see, it's not just that the surroundings were bad, because we see elsewhere in the Bible, don't we? Plenty of people are able to sing hymns and praise to God when their surroundings are terrible. Think of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, with their ankles in stocks after being beaten in the darkness of the inner prison. They were singing praises and hymns to God at midnight. It wasn't about the surroundings, you see. The difference is, Paul and Silas were in that prison because of their faithfulness to God. Israel was sitting at the banks of the Euphrates River in Babylon being tormented because of their lack of faithfulness to God. And that's the difference here. And you can see how that must have just been tearing these Jewish people up inside. They were there because of their unfaithfulness. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, and the psalmist here knows uh, really what has brought them down to this lowest place that they're in now. And I would say that this psalmist understands this. I'd say he's repentant. Uh, he knows what has happened. It's not that every single Jewish person in the nation would have been led into apostasy. Even the faithful ones we know of Daniel and all these different people, they would have been caught up and still taken into captivity whilst remaining faithful. But the way Israel worked was they were a corporate body. That They spoke of we, not I, necessarily, as they spoke about the, sin, the sins of Israel. So they, they would repent for the whole nation's sins, one another. But for him to sing the songs of Zion at this time would be a mockery of the purpose and truth of which those songs were given. You see, it would indicate that he has forgotten everything that Zion stood for. So instead now, he makes a vow. He says, my hand forget her skill, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I forget everything that Jerusalem stands for and is. And remember, this is probably a Levite writing this song, or one of, sorry, composing this, David rather, but speaking of the Levites here, the hand and the mouth, hand is what you play your music with, and the, t the mouth is talking about musicians here, about singing basically the songs of Zion. He says, if I ever forget, curse me basically. It's a self-curse what he's saying, just may my hands not be able to play, may my tongue not be able to sing. He would not be able to sing those praises for God if he forgets about Zion. And again, remember, Zion is talking about their intimacy and their fellowship with God, the place that they had with the God of Israel. He says, this must be exalted above our chief joy. You see, everything in life flows out of our relationship with the Lord. If we're believers, everything comes from our relationship with the Lord. It must be exalted above every other thing, purpose, place, thought, everything that we have in our life must come from that. Much easier said than done, I know that, but that is the point that this verse is getting at. And if you haven't got that right in your, in your life, I think the message is quite simply, stop, don't go any further, and address that issue. In many ways, this is what the word repentance means, the teshuvah that we talk about, the stopping and the turning, acknowledging and walking back to God. This is one of the things that we wanted it to do. Let's read 7, 8, and 9. It says, Remember, O Lord, 
against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed is the, will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now this is the part of the psalm that obviously you find uh, all over the internet on sceptical websites and debates and all these sorts of things. We'll talk about it a little bit. For me, it's one of these issues that's blown way out of proportion as people debate it in the 21st century as it's out of context from the Bible. I've, I've watched atheists, people like Dan Barker and that, say that the God is a moral monster because here he's clearly prescribing that if people want to be happy, they go out and they do these atrocious acts. And, of course, that's just not what the verse is saying. It misunderstands the Psalms, it misunderstands the genre of literature, uh, rips it out of its context to make a point, and I want us to try and keep it within the context here so that we understand it better. Let's talk about the sons of Edom, though. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. Now, the, the psalmist asks the Lord to remember what Edom did to them in the day of Jerusalem's destruction. If you remember, the Edomites were a neighbour of Israel. They were the southern neighbour of Israel. But they were more than that. They were brothers, in many sense, of Israel. Uh, they descended from Esau, not Jacob. They descended from Esau. So in that way, they were sort of related. And thus, they should have helped their, their brother when they saw the Babylonians come, when they saw them in their distress, when they saw them being destroyed. But we learn from the Bible, Edom hated Israel. Edom was one of the most anti-Semitic nations that we have at this time, and this is a promise that we find in the Bible that they will be judged for this one day. And in fact, there are many scriptures and history that indicates that Nebuchadnezzar uh, actually employed the Edomites to do the first wave of attacks and cause all that destruction and bloodshed and glee, if you could just imagine the scene there. There's actually a whole book in the Bible that's completely um, topical focus is about the destruction of Edom in judgment for this. Let me just read to you a little verse of it. It's called the book of Obadiah, one of those small minor prophets that are just one chapter. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 10 to 12 says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, so because of the way you have treated Israel, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, this day of misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. So you get the picture here. Edom looking on from the sidelines, many of them probably even involved in helping, sort of just being like, good, okay? This is good, someone's destroying Israel right now. And there, there it said, raise it, verse, verse uh, 7, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. They wanted Israel completely wiped off the face of the earth. Raise it right down to its foundation. And when, in this context, it means they wanted God's people gone, and it also means they wanted memory of the God of Israel wiped off the face of the earth. And in many ways, <laughs> this is still the same sort of thing that we see with modern anti-Semitism. I still see behind it the satanic purpose to destroy God's people, and I still see behind it this desire to get rid of the name of the God of Israel, and I believe that would equally apply to the persecution of the church that we've talked about on Sunday mornings recently, to get rid of God's people, to wipe off God's name from the earth. These were the Edomites. It says, O daughter of Babylon, verse eight now. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated ones, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have paid us. 
And this is the context verse. These two verses are difficult. You need to keep them in context. It's speaking about the destruction of Babylon now. Verse 8 is the context. This is a prayer by this psalmist coming from a place of deep injustice. Everything that he's seen happen to his people in this captivity. And he is praying for justice. And it's very typical in the Old Testament sort of lex talionis, eye for an eye mindset that those who are being used as an instrument of judgment, if they're being immoral, one day they will be judged by someone else in the same way. And that is exactly what we see happening here. It's very similar to the sentiment, uh, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Remember that, that concept. We have to be clear, this verse is not a prescriptive verse. And what I mean that sometimes in the Bible you have to make sure you separate what we call prescriptive verses and descriptive verses. A prescriptive verse is a direct command. Do this sort of attitude. That's what a lot of the New Testament epistles will have. Do, do this, do not do this. These are prescriptive verses. A descriptive verse is something slightly different. Often it's just, just describing what happened in history. It's not necessarily saying we want you to follow this, or it's a different sort of verse. That's what we have going on here. What the psalmist is basically saying, if I could sort of try and summarize it, is he's saying to these Babylonians, you can gloat and you can taunt and you can mock us, you can try and get us to sing the songs of Zion, and you can do all these horrible things that you're doing, but I know your fate will be the same as what you inflicted on us. That's what the psalmist is basically saying here. That's what he is almost praying for in that place of deep pain and emotion here. One day, Babylon, because of what you've done, you will suffer the same. And verse 9, where it says, How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. This is not just some punishment that he's devised out of the, the, the horribleness of his hatred in his heart. What he's doing in this verse, think about it, with the recompense with which you have paid, repaid us, someone will repay you. What did they do? He, this is a way of bringing to light what the Babylonians did when they took over Judah. So this is actually a way of bringing the charge against the Babylonians that when you came and invaded Judah, you did what ancient Near Eastern empires do when they take over. You dashed, you killed the young population, and you killed the women. So it, it's not in the same sense of saying, oh, please, Lord, do this to these horrible people. It's, it's a sort of a backwards way of highlighting the charge of what happened and saying that because that was such an immoral act and you wicked people were happy and treacherous doing it, God will bring that one day on you. And how did he know this? Because it was actually prophesied in the Bible. Isaiah 13 verse 16 speaks about the downfall of Babylon. And it says, their little ones will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and on. So it's almost a direct quote from Isaiah. And that's the context here. We, we miss all of that. We don't realize that he's quoting a fulfillment of Scripture. We don't realize that he's not making a prescriptive announcement of something he wants to happen. He is bringing to light the charge of what the Babylonians did. And he is saying, just as you are an immoral nation and you were happy in this wickedness, you are going to get it from an immoral nation who is also happy in this wickedness. And we know that's exactly what happened when the Medo-Persian Empire took over and destroyed Babylon. So this is, this is the sort of the mindset. So you can see when Dan Barker stands up in the 21st century and says, the Bible's commanding this sort of nonsense. He's just so far removed from the context of this psalm as to be almost not worthy of having a conversation about, except that obviously we need to defend the, the Bible in that sense. But that is more uh, a better understanding of this psalm there. He is referring uh, to the fact that those Babylonians were an instrument of judgment in God's hands, and yet the same will happen to them one day because of their wickedness, and the Persian Empire did do that. And today, just incidentally, 
Both Edom and Babylon are gone, but Israel still remains. God will not be mocked. He is in charge of his people, and those who punish his people will suffer the judgment of the Lord. Now that is Psalm 137. It's a heavy psalm. It's an imprecatory psalm. They are all quite, they make you think. Let's, let's do that. Like I said, sometimes we need to think like that. Let's move on to Psalm 138. It's only a short psalm, eight verses. It takes a very different tone. You see now, almost as if we're moving on from the time when a psalmist can't sing because of the pain, because he's on the, in exile. Now we see a psalm to where it anticipates the universal praise of God. The Levites can't sing, everyone one day is going to sing. That's the contrast that we get here with these two psalms, which is why they're probably supposed to be read back to back, because the content in the first psalm is heavy, it makes you think, it makes you uh, contemplate the reality of man's sinfulness, the reality of what sin uh, can cause in this world. And then we move on to look at the future about what will happen. So let's just jump in. It says, I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. So this, again, a very different beginning to this psalm now. I'll give you thanks with all my heart. The word there is referring to wholehearted devotion. We've talked about that a few times in the Psalms. The, the whole point of it is there was nothing, no part of his heart that was left out of this activity. It's talking about the whole person in the Hebraic mindset, both body, mind, soul, however you want to separate it. Everything was given to the task of praising God, of giving thanks to the Lord. And in verse, uh, the end of the second half of verse 1, it says, I'll sing praises to you before the gods. A lot of people get confused about that. Who's he talking about? What are these other gods? It's small g, basically. I think the idea here is simply saying that in the midst of surrounding nations and pagan cultures, or maybe what we would call a secular culture, none of those things will stop him from praising and giving thanks to the Lord. So in the midst of all these different things that we have going on in this world, none of them should hinder us from using our mouth to give thanks and give praise to the Lord. And this is illustrated in the act of bowing down towards the holy temple. And then he gives thanks. The second part of verse 2 is a lovely verse. And give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. You see, he gives thanks for the two foundational aspects of God's nature that are so often emphasized in the Psalms. His loving kindness and his truth. This tells me that there was substance to his praise and his giving thanks. And I, I think... I think we can learn a big lesson from that today. Not only as we think about what is the content of our own faith, uh, what is the reason that we're involved in doing all the things we do, uh, that we're involved in following the Lord and following Jesus, what is that content, but also in the sense of giving thanks, and thanks is often associated with praise and adoration. Why do we do these things? Why do we sing the songs that we do? We all know, I don't have to tell you, in many circles in popular Christian culture, a lot of the time we sing because we like the tunes, don't we? How many times have you said, oh yeah, I like the song, I'm not too keen on where it comes from or the doctrine. Yeah? You hear that a lot, don't you? This is basically telling you that the content is no good. And therefore, don't get me wrong, tune can be brilliant. But the psalmist here is praising and giving thanks to God based on the content that he knows about God, loving kindness and his truth. Loving kindness and his truth and I think we can learn a lesson not just in worship but also in the way that we serve in the way that we operate in the world the way that we speak to people about Christ it's his loving kindness and his truth loving kindness how many times have we talked about that word throughout the Psalms 
It's the, it's the Hebrew word chesed. It's that covenant faithfulness, the covenant loyalty that I'm often emphasizing. It's such an important term. It's the Old Testament equivalent of the word grace, basically. That's almost the closest thing that we could describe it there. It's grace. And then he says, your truth too. We know that God is described in the Bible as a God of truth. The point here is not necessarily trying to refer to some sort of abstract principle about correspondence and reality like we might speak in the Western world. The point he's saying here is God is truth, i.e. his promises are true, they will not fail, and there is no falsehood in his character or in his words. That's what's being emphasized here. So that part of his character, along with the loving kindness of his character, is what is causing this psalmist to just break out in praise and declare and invite the whole world in many ways to praise the Lord. And then look at the third line of verse 3. Again, wonderful verse. It's a good memory verse, Psalm 138, verse 2. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. According to all your name. You have magnified your word. Now just think about that. What a statement. How important is the name of God? Seen the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It represents everything he is, everything he stands for, every part of his moral nature, all of his attributes, his goodness, his omniscience, his power. It's all tied up in his name that he has revealed to us. It's so important. Often we're told not to blaspheme his name, not to use his name in vain in the commandments, isn't it? This is how important his name is, but here it says he has magnified his word according to all his name. The word of God is crucial. You cannot be a Christian and not love the word of God. I don't see how you can, anyway, to be frank. This is what it says right here. He has magnified the word according to all his name. How important should the word of God be to us? We must have a high view of scripture in the church. It is the scripture that will guide us. It's the scripture that reveals him to us through the Holy Spirit. It's what encourages us, edifies us, convicts us, corrects us. All of these things are ministries of the word that we have. And if you're not getting these things from the word, if you're seeking comfort in other things, if you're seeking other uh, help in your life, now I'm not talking in a massive broad sense, obviously there's things the Bible doesn't address, it's not what I'm talking about, but if you're going somewhere else for them, you've got no guarantee that there's no falsehood. That's the point that's being emphasized here. Remember, it's the loving kindness and the truth in the sense that there is nothing false in his character and his word. He tells you no lie. He doesn't get anything wrong. He makes no mistakes. He knows every thought in your mind and he can address the problems seriously. And he is the one who orders world history. Be it nations, captivity, kings on thrones, people in churches, whatever it may be, this is the Lord. It is his word. He says, on the day I called you, verse three, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. You see, now he gives praise for the practical part of this relationship, for, what is, for basically what God has done. He cried out to God, on the day I called, you answered me, and you, God met him. God met him and strengthened his soul. And that's a very good example for us. Sometimes, and as we see over and over in the Psalms, the emotions are raw. People come to God when they're angry. People come to God to complain about their situation. And this is all fine, particularly in the Hebraic mindset. This was the sort of thing that was often done. You cry out with your emotions to God and God hears and he meets and he speaks and he ministers. In whatever form that may take, that is what we see going on in the Psalms. And notice the progression though here. You don't come to God and do that as a spoiled child so-and-so's got this, why haven't I got this? And that sort of attitude, like quite often is probably the case. Uh, we're all guilty of that. 
But notice the progression, and this is very important in his praise and his thanksgiving, because it's a great model for doing this. First, what does he give thanks for? It was for the attributes of God. So this person knows the attributes of God. He has spent time in personal relationship, communion with the Lord. For us, it would be we study these attributes. We know, the, uh, we know Jesus Christ. We know the Holy Spirit. We are learning about what it is he loves, what it hates, what it means that he's all-powerful, what this loving kindness is, what his grace is, what his truth is. He gives thanks for the attributes of God. So that's the first thing he does. And then he gives thanks for the word of God. It's the revelation, his word. And then after that, he speaks about the practical elements where he gives thanks for what God has done, for meeting him in that cry of desperation, in that time of distress. So it's that threefold progression that is actually quite crucial. Often we like to just jump to the last one, don't we? This is, this is wrong with me, this is wrong with me. And I, you know, we all do that, I understand that. But sometimes it's probably better for us just to go back, meditate, dwell on the character of God, be refreshed, be encouraged through his word, and then we give our our petitions, our intercessions, our complaints, our, open our heart to the Lord in that sense. That is what the psalmist does here. Verse 4, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So right now David, the king of Israel, is praising the Lord. But ultimately, this is in fulfillment of the promise that was given to David. One day, all nations and their kings will give thanks to the Lord. And again, it's related to the word of God. It says, when they hear the words of his mouth. And in many, many commentators see an echo of this, uh, of gospel missionary. Um, I think it's more related to the Davidic covenant. But actually, I don't have a problem with that because it ties in. If you think about it, one day, a, de a descendant of David who will be that Davidic king will have his message told by his body, the bride of Christ, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is gospel preaching. They'll take that mission, that message, out to all the world, telling the gospel, and when they hear the words, people will sing praises to him. And that has happened all over the world. When the true glory of the Lord is revealed. Now, I don't think we have really any imagination of what that will be like when the true glory of the Lord is revealed. You see, we have this image, that picture of the glorified Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1. Our minds often go to the incarnate Jesus in his time on this earth. But when the true glory of the Lord, like those disciples on Mount Hermon who got that brief glimpse of him when he let the glory shine through, bright as light, blinding light, and they fell down on their faces, that is what the glory of the Lord will be like. And it basically, it's saying here, when you see that glory, the only proper response you can have is praise and thanksgiving and no longer bowing down towards the temple, you are bowing down towards the king. That is what the response should be. Although the Lord is exalted, verse 6, for though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly. So we know that the Lord is exalted. And one day the name of Jesus will be exalted in all the earth so far above anything else, but still a God like that cares for the humble and for the lowly. And this is just, for me, a lovely expression of the Lord's heart. He came for the downtrodden, he came for the outcasts, he came for the humble. Jesus made this point many times. It's a theme that you'll find constantly emphasised throughout the Bible. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Those who are proud will be humbled, those who are humble will be exalted. This is the point that he's making here. Let's look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. 
You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. His confidence and knowledge of God's character, that he knows God cares for the lowly, it strengthened his faith when he was in the midst of trouble. This is a good lesson for us. Uh, Many people, I've chatted with many people over the years, they're struggling with a particular issue, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. And then when you speak to them, and you talk about have they searched that issue out in the word of God, what of the biblical principles are you applying to try and help yourself have victory over that? There's nothing there. They haven't done that. They're looking for a quick fix or, or struggling without knowing But the Bible gives us many clues to how to deal with these things. One of them is to better understand the attributes and character of God. If you've ever had that experience where you've discovered something about the Lord through studying, through listening to a preacher or whatever, it touches your soul. And it encourages you, it strengthens your soul, and it moves you on further. It means you can endure more in this world, you can put up with more, and you know the Lord on that deeper and intimate level. This is often why trials come to us in this world, because it seeks the believer to search out God, to cry out to him, and that is often where he meets us in the midst of trouble. The psalmist here, he knew that. He cried out, he knew the character of God, and it strengthened his face. He knew that God would revive him, because of the promises he had in David's case. He also knew that God would deliver him from his enemies because he knew the Davidic covenant had to be fulfilled. God's word could not be broken. God's word would be fulfilled. He knew that nothing could thwart the Lord's plan concerning him. Do not forsake the work of your hands. That's what he's getting at with that statement. I know the Lord will never leave me. And then he ends just with that wonderful statement Another statement in the Psalms of the Lord's everlasting love. This gives him the confidence. That's the reason why he will never be forsaken. It's back to that same reason that he was giving praise for. The loving kindness of God, his character, his nature, and his truth. As in, his word is true, there is no falsehood in him, and his word will never be broken. And I would say that we too can have that exact same confidence, and I would say if not more so, because we are privileged to have so much more revelation than these people had at this time. We have the life of Jesus. We have that perfect, radiant representation, the exact representation of the Father that was revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And we have the revealed word that these people did not have available to them in that way. So we are recipients of much more revelation than they are, much more glory. And thus, we should have much more confidence that his word is true, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, for the king said it. Amen? Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.